bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, October 30th, 2012. I apologize for my hoarse voice. However, the San Francisco Giants did win the World Series. Next Tuesday is Election Day, so future podcasts will have a lot of analysis as to what the impact of next Tuesday's elections are likely to have on the tax credit industries in which we report, and more significantly on the prospects for tax reform, as well as ways to deal with the fiscal cliff. I begin this week's podcast with a brief note about tax reform and an update on the implementation of regulatory capital requirements under Basel III. In our New Market Tax Credit segment, I'll review updated versions of the New Market Tax Credit Program's low-income community eligibility data and transition FAQs, FAQs that were re- released recently by the CDFI Fund. In the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit section, I'll follow up on a topic from last week that Novogratz and company is studying for its potential effect on rent and income limits for some low-income housing tax credit properties in rural areas. Then, I'll discuss a new report about transportation and housing costs, and I'll share an announcement regarding a new interactive tool from HUD. In this week's historic tax credit section, I have another update on the historic boardwalk hall case and more state-level news from Rhode Island, where support is growing for the state's historic tax credit. And finally, in our renewable energy discussion, I'll also review a letter submitted by investors to congressional leaders urging them to extend the wind energy production tax credit before it expires at the end of December. And then I'll end today's podcast with news from the American Wind Energy Association, which announced recently record-level turbine installations in the third quarter. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, last week, President Obama's re-election campaign released a 20-page pamphlet entitled The New Economic Patriotism, a plan for jobs and middle-class security. Among other things, the plan calls for reforming the corporate tax code by closing tax preferences and loopholes to bring down tax rates. The pamphlet places particular emphasis on renewable energy, so I'll discuss this publication in more detail during our renewable energy tax credit discussion. However, The pamphlet does suggest that President Obama is retreating on his proposed top corporate tax rate of 28%. Back in February of this year, the White House and Treasury Department proposed lowering the top overall corporate tax rate from 35% to 28%, a full quarter 25% reduction in the top tax rate, 35% minus 7% for 28%. They also proposed lowering the top corporate tax rate of manufacturing even more, from 35% to 25%, a reduction of more than a quarter, 28.6% to be more exact. However, in the 20-page pamphlet the President proposes, 
reforming the corporate tax code to bring down tax rates, cutting tax rates on domestic manufacturers, and I'm quoting here, by nearly a quarter. So based on this document, it appears that President Obama will be proposing a top corporate tax rate of manufacturing higher than the previously suggested overall top rate of 25%. Furthermore, since the document says nearly a quarter, it means the overall tax rate of manufacturing will likely be higher than 28%. Presumably, this also means that President Obama will be suggesting a top overall corporate tax rate of more than 28%. Now, as you probably know, Republicans in Congress have been suggesting a top corporate tax rate of 25%. So it appears that the distance between congressional Republicans and the White House as it relates to the top corporate tax rate just got farther apart. Now, turning to capital requirements, amidst growing calls from noted banking regulators in the nation's community banks, Senators Sherrod Brown and David Vitter one Democrat, one Republican, last week urged banking agencies to simplify and strengthen, emphasis on strengthen, new bank capital standards. As the United States begins to implement the Basel III international capital standards, the two senators urged regulators, regulators at the Federal Reserve, Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, or OCC, and the FDIC, to abandon what they describe as the overly complex approach of the Basel Accord. Instead, they say regulators should focus on higher and more loss-absorbing capital buffers. You can find a copy of the letter online at www.novaco.com. Meanwhile, a group of real estate industry organizations joined together to comment on regulatory capital rules, including regulatory capital rules related to the implementation of Basel III. These groups argue that proposals should not be implemented until the significant concerns raised in their letter have been comprehensively addressed. For example, they write that the layering of Basel III on top of other newer proposed rules will stifle real estate finance. They write, and I quote, This would be especially harmful to community and small and regional banks that may have great difficulty implementing the proposal's barrage of new compliance mandates. Close quote. You can find a copy of the letter online at www.nmhc.org. In new market tax credit news, today is the QAI issuance deadline for those CDEs with prior allocations that also applied in the current new market tax credit round. Since today is the issuance deadline, we expect the month of October to have above average QAI issuances. Turning to the CDFI fund, earlier this month, the CDFI fund released updated versions of the New Markets Tax Credit Program's Low-Income Community Eligibility Data and Transition FAQs, Frequently Asked Questions. The eligibility data is based on income and poverty statistics from the 2006-2010 American Community Survey. It's listed in a spreadsheet that contains information about all of the census tracts covered by the ACS. Now, as for the transition FAQs, that document provides guidance on the transition from the 2000 census to the 2006 through 2010 ACS data. In the revised version, the CDFI fund added six new questions and answers, including a clarification for CDEs on how to ensure that they continue to meet their accountability requirements. Specifically, 
The Q&A states that beginning on July 1, 2013, certified CDEs must use 2006 through 2010 ACS data as applied to the 2010 census tracts to identify eligible census tracts in maintaining compliance with their accountability requirements. For example, assume a CDE has a three-person governing board, one of whom is a low-income community representative. And based upon this, the CDE is deemed to meet the accountability requirements because more than 20% of its governing board is made up of low-income community representatives, a third. Now, if this low-income community representative is eligible based on 2,000 census data, and based on the updated census data would not be eligible, then the CDE will have to adjust its method of accountability, which may include replacing the low-income community representative. Now, I do note that this provision applies beginning on July 1, 2013. The updated FAQs also feature guidance on high-migration rural counties. As listeners may know, the New Market Task Force program supports activities in, among other places, census tracts in high-migration rural counties with a family income at or below 85% of the applicable area median family income. A high-migration rural county is any county which, during the 20-year period ending with the year in which the most recent census was conducted, has a net out-migration of inhabitants from the county of at least 10% of the population of the county as of the beginning of that period. In the updated FAQs, the City of Firefront says it has generated a list of 101 census tracts that, based on the 2006-2010 ACS data, qualifies eligible for new market tax rate investment under this special provision. A link to that list can be found in the FAQ. You can find copies of the updated eligibility data and tradition FAQs online at www.newmarketscredits.com. And if you have questions about these new eligibility criteria or the transition period, I encourage you to contact my partner, Brad Elphick. He's in our Atlanta office at 678-867-2333. He heads up the New Market Task Credit Working Group and has been working closely to address a variety of eligibility and transition issues. In low-income housing tax credit news, I'd like to follow up on a topic from last week that Novograd and Company is studying for its potential effect on written income limits for some low-income housing tax credit properties in rural areas. For the past several years, the rural designation has been determined using population data from the 2000 census. However, with the release of the 2010 census population data, some areas that were rural, according to the 2000 census, will no longer be considered rural. Some estimates suggest that more than 900 areas could potentially lose their rural status. This would mean these areas are no longer eligible to qualify for certain funding from USDA, United States Department of Agriculture. The USDA has deferred implementation, however, of the new 2010 census data until March 27th of 2013. As listeners may know, 9% low-income tax credit projects in rural areas are allowed to use the greater of the national non-metro median income where the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development published income limits for their area. 
This is what they would use to determine their rent and income limits. Now, I first want to note that it's unclear if the extension that the USDA granted in implementing the 2010 census in determining what areas qualify for rural funding also applies to the Long-Term Housing Tax Credit Program's definition of rural. If you think you have projects located in an affected area, I encourage you to contact your state agency. Now, despite the estimates that more than 900 areas could potentially lose their rural status, fewer areas would have their rent and income limits affected by the change. That's because in order for the rent and income limits to be affected, an area has to both lose its rural status and be located in a county that has an income limit that's less than the national non-metro median income. Now we've calculated that for 2012, there are about 1,015 counties with income limits that are below the national non-metro income limit. Now the average difference in these areas is about $3,288. I would note from a rent perspective that at a 60% AMGI level and the 30% rent limit, that translates into about $50 less a month in rent. New affordable housing projects in affected areas would no longer be eligible to use the national non-metro income limits and as such would have a reduction in their qualifying income limits by this roughly $3,200 depending on the actual statistics of that particular county as well as a reduction in rents once again $50 a month on average. Now while we can say this about new affordable housing projects it's unclear if the hold harmless rule would extend to existing projects that lose their rural designation. If the hold harmless rule does not extend to existing projects, then those projects would no longer be able to use the national non-metro limit. And as I stated before, that means that the qualifying income levels could be $3,000 give or take lower, and the per monthly rents could be $50 give or take lower. Now if the hold harmless rule is not applicable, and these incomes and rent levels decrease, it could lead to increased vacancies among projects as well as lower operating income. A pretty significant issue. Novograding Company is working on quantifying how many of these counties contain areas that are at risk of losing their rural status as well as whether or not existing projects will be held harmless. A detailed analysis of this change will be available in an upcoming issue of the Journal of Tax Credits. And I also want to note that the Novogradic Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Working Group is working on this issue. If you want to learn more about the working group and its efforts here, I'd encourage you to contact Stacy Stewart in our Dover, Ohio office. And if you have specific questions concerning the rural designation of your particular area or your particular project, I'd encourage you to contact Thomas Stagg in our Bellevue, Washington office. He can be reached at 425-453-5783. Let's turn for a moment to housing and transportation. The Center for Housing Policy, along with the Center for Neighborhood Technology, released a report this month that addresses the effect of rising housing and transportation costs on moderate income households. The report found that transportation and housing expenses for moderate income households in the country's 25 largest metro areas rose 44% since the year 2000. This rate is 1.7 times faster 
than the growth of income. Research showed that moderate income renters spend an average of 55% of their income on housing and transportation. This report does outline several key recommendations to address these trends, and one of the main recommendations is to preserve existing affordable homes in location-efficient areas, and they specifically suggest using long-composing tax credits to recapitalize and modernize well-located homes. You can find the report at www.taxcredithousing.com. The report's entitled, Losing Ground, The Struggle of Moderate Income Households to Afford the Rising Costs of Housing and Transportation. And this, Justin from HUD, HUD has launched a new interactive tool for community planning and development, or CPD, grantees. The tool will calculate the income eligibility and assistance amounts for CPD program beneficiaries. The income calculator currently works with eight CPD programs, including the Brownfield Economic Development Initiative, the Community Development Block Grant Program, and the Home Investment Partnerships Program. Users can input data, and the calculator will generate results for each beneficiary. Users can then print the summary sheets and include them in the beneficiaries file. The tool only calculates income eligibility. Grantees still need to collect, verify, and file third-party source documents to the extent required. HUD recently released or recently held a webinar on how to use the calculator, and they have another one scheduled for November 6th. Recording transcripts and PowerPoint slides of the webinars will be available online within one week of each session, and it will be at the Neighborhood Stabilization Program Learning Center. You can access the Income Eligibility Calculator by going to www. 1cpd.info www.onecpd.info In historic tax credit news, in the latest chapter of the historic boardwalk hall case, last week the Third Circuit Court of Appeals denied the taxpayer's petition for rehearing. If you turned, tuned in to last week's podcast, you may recall that the taxpayer based the petition on the argument that the panel did not follow precedent used the wrong standard of review, and erroneously treated the historic tax credits as property. The rehearing petition was considered a long shot because there was no dissent on the panel that overturned the tax court's decision to uphold the partnership and allow the credits. In its denial of the petition for rehearing, the court said that none of the judges that concurred in the decision had asked for rehearing, and that a majority of the circuit judges in regular service had not voted for rehearing. Now, industry practitioners have already begun to alter certain features of tax credit structures in response to the court's ruling. And you can find out more about this trend in the October issue of the Journal of Tax Credits. And more importantly, if you have specific questions about how the decision might affect your historic tax credit transaction, you can contact my partner, Tom Bosha, in our Cleveland, Ohio office. He can be reached at 216-736-4100. Let's move to Rhode Island. Figuratively, that is. Support for the Rhode Island Historic Tax Credit continues to grow. Last week, I reported that State Representative Jeremiah O'Grady said that the State Historic Tax Credit was a way to stabilize the tax base for cities and towns. Now, State Senate candidate Lou Raptakis and State Representative candidate Nicholas Denise have come out in support of reinstating the credit. 
Coventry Patch, an online newsletter, reported last week that these candidates would like to see the credit, which was suspended back in 2008, revived and used to rehab Harris Mill in Coventry, Rhode Island. Harris Mill is a 10-building textile mill complex that was built between 1850 and 1953. The mill complex is on the National Register of Historic Places, and according to the website for the architectural firm Thomas Leonardo and Associates, there are plans to, re- to renovate the buildings into luxury apartments and retail spaces. The company's website says that it has completed drawings for a tax credit application, but that the status of that redevelopment plan is unclear. Furthermore, the mill suffered a fire that was potentially arson in December of 2011, and the Coventry Patch article describes the area as abandoned, overgrown, and crime-ridden. The candidates cite the redevelopment of the Royal Mills in nearby West Warwick as an example of how the State Historic Tax Credit Program revitalized an area. They say that the reinstatement of the program which would provide a 30% state tax credit for rehab projects, would enable communities to get buildings like Harris Mill back on the tax rolls. It's great to see so much support for a state historic tax credit program, and we'll be interested to see if Rhode Island does reinstate the program next year. If you'd like to learn more about Rhode Island's historic tax credit program or other states' programs, I encourage you to visit the Historic Tax Credit Resource Center at www.historictaxcredits.com. There you can find links to all the State Historic Tax Credit programs. In Renewable Energy Tax Credit news, as I mentioned at the beginning of today's podcast, President Obama's re-election campaign recently released a pamphlet proposing a number of actions of interest to the Renewable Energy Tax Credit community. In addition to calling for lower corporate tax rates, the pamphlet places an emphasis on manufacturing and they particularly cite the Section 48 Cap-C Advanced Energy Manufacturing Tax Credit that they say supported 183 projects in 43 states. Beyond showing support for that, they also called to support extending tax credits more broadly that support clean energy. A copy of the proposal can be found online at www.novaco.com. Looking at the production tax credit and its extension, two dozen investors managing a combined $800 billion in assets, recently wrote congressional leaders urging them to extend the wind energy production tax credit. That before it expires at the end of December. Signatories included the California State Teachers Retirement System, the Comptroller's Offices for New York City and State, and the State Treasurers of North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Oregon. The group argued that encouraging investment in clean energy requires stable and long-term incentives, like the production tax credit. Expiration of the tax credit, they warned, would damage America's ability to compete in the global marketplace and would divert hundreds of billions of dollars, investment dollars, away from our economy. The group advised Congress not to let the tax credit expire and as such fall into the boom-bust cycles of the past. Whenever the PTC was allowed to expire previously, wind installations dropped between 73 and 93 percent. The group wrote that short-term and inconsistent policies make it difficult for them to invest. The letters posted at www.energytaxcredits.com. For the first time, the U.S. wind industry surpassed 50,000 megawatts of total installed generation capacity 
that in the third quarter of 2012. This, according to reports from the American Wind Energy Association. In addition, projects slated to bring another 8,400 megawatts of wind energy are online and un currently under construction. AWEA said that the federal production tax credit and wind energy's increased affordability are driving this year's record level installations. Compared to the third quarter of last year, the year-to-date total installations are up by 40%. Some other factors that AWEA says may be contributing to the industry's growth are expanded manufacturing, technological advances, and the fact that more electric utilities are locking in long-term contracts for wind energy. However, the group cautioned, if the production tax credit is allowed to expire at the end of this year, 37,000 jobs could be lost by the first quarter of 2013. Even as the construction sector remains busy, layoffs in wind energy, measurement, development, manufacturing have already begun. A proposal to extend the production tax credit awaits congressional action, which may happen after the election in the lame duck session. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. I apologize once again for my hoarse voice, and I know it again, the San Francisco Giants are World Series champions in 2012. Please join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik & Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novogratik.com slash podcast or by subscribing to the Novogratik Report on tax credits in iTunes. Novogratik & Company, LLP, is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with 13 offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novago.com.